0: The very things that we assume might help others and help us to have insight into the things of God, religious knowledge, education, intelligence, a high IQ, those things will never guarantee spiritual insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller, and Jonathan, if You know, religious knowledge and intelligence is not going to give us insight into the things of Christ. What does?
0: You know, it's very interesting, Steve. We might assume that our education or our IQ might be the determining factors that enable us to come to understand Uh, The truth about Jesus Christ. But again and again throughout the Bible, and particularly here in the Gospels, we see that there is something else that is essential, and that is really the intervention of Jesus himself, even a miracle on the part of Jesus, to open spiritually blind eyes. And that's actually what each of us need, and we, we see Jesus doing that very thing here in our passage today.
1: It's a good reminder that uh, the work of salvation and knowledge and understanding of him begins with him. I think uh, some may have this assumption that, well, if uh, I kind of want that to happen, then I'm responsible for that happening.
0: That's right, and we see again and again that it takes the kind initiative of Jesus for those eyes to be open. But that's not to say we don't play our part. We need to respond to what we are shown about Jesus in his word. And we have that opportunity even today as we dig into this passage in Matthew chapter 9.
1: Well, let's get into his word. We're going to dig into verses 18 to 34 of Matthew 9 and continue the message. When religion confronts spiritual reality. Here is Jonathan.
0: At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly accepted my defilement and your defilement. He died as a cleansing sacrifice. He died that you and I might be purified, that we might move from exclusion and isolation. Just think of that woman. Move from being outcasts from the family of God and from the presence of God, and instead be welcomed as family, as daughters, as sons. It's very clear from Scripture that those who are spiritually, uh, ceremonially defiled by sin are actually spiritually dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But Jesus, what did he do? He reached down into the grave, into the spiritual grave, and he took us by the hand and lifted us up. And lifting us up, he gave us life. As Jesus encounters different people in different situations in the gospel, some of us will identify in a particular way with some individual and some story. And I'm sure that for some, as you see here, Jesus addressing uncleanness and defilement which, with such grace and with such power, just the sight of that and the sound of it is pure refreshment to your soul. I wonder if some are feeling that even now. It's refreshment for you because you simply need to be reminded today that Jesus does, in fact, have power to heal, power to cleanse, and that if you belong to him, he has, in fact, made you clean. If you're a true believer, you hate the filth of sin. We all do. You hate the lingering defilement you see in your own life. And maybe you've come this morning just needing to be reminded of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Others of us here resonate with this picture and we're intrigued by it, not because it's so much a reminder to you, but actually because it's something very fresh to you and you've never heard this before, you've never seen it before. Maybe today you are feeling very much that defilement in your own life, the stain of sin. Maybe that's a factor that prompted you to come here today, that's on your heart, you feel the burden of it, and you're just tired of feeling unclean. You know, the kinds of things that you've been involved with, things you've thought, things you've said, things you've done. It may be that you're sitting here in this room thinking, if all the respectable people in this room sitting around me knew half my story, if they could see on the screen the videotape of the last few days of my life, probably they would not want to be sitting there next to me anymore. And perhaps today you long for nothing more than you long for this. You long to be made clean. And if that's you, well, here is the message for you today. Here is the offer. Jesus Christ reaches out his hand to you. He invites you to take that hand by faith, and he offers to make you clean. You may feel that you're too unclean for Jesus. You might fear that he would turn you away. But Jesus doesn't turn anyone away, and no filth, no defilement is too great for his blood to cleanse. Well, as if that hadn't been enough miracle working for one day, enough grace, enough healing, enough display of power, Jesus now continues on his journey. And in the next encounter, we learn that this Savior who cleanses is also the King who restores. In verse 27, Jesus encounters two blind men. They actually pursue him. They come after him. They cannot see with their eyes, but they have perceived something about him. And they call out to him, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.'" The Old Testament long promised that a descendant of great King David would come as God's promised king and his savior, his Messiah. And these two men who have been deprived of their physical sight, they have spiritual insight to see in Jesus what many others all around him fail to see. They see that this is God's Messiah standing before them, though blind, they see. And seeing this with the eyes of faith, they cry out to him for mercy. Mercy. They go inside a house nearby, and Jesus asks these men if they, if they believe that he can heal them. They affirm that they do believe. Yes, Lord, they replied. And so Jesus touches their eyes. He tells them that he will do for them according to their faith, and their sight is restored. Jesus and his disciples are now going out of the house where this healing has taken place, and yet another needy person comes to him. This time it's a man suffering demon possession demon has so oppressed the man for so long that it's robbed him of his speech and his friends have brought him to Jesus just in the hope of restoration and healing and as he's done before Jesus drives out the demon and without any delay the man's speech is restored it's a miracle When we were looking at some of the previous healing miracles back in chapter 8, we found that a significant Old Testament promise and expectation really stands behind Jesus' healings. And it it helps us to understand what they mean. Isaiah 35 and verse 5, let me just remind you, it says this. Then, in, in the age of the Messiah, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. When those things happen, says Isaiah 35, it'll be a clear sign to everyone that God's Messiah, God's King, has arrived. Now, obviously, what happens in Jesus's first coming 2,000 years ago is a foretaste of what will happen in an age to come. The full reality of this is yet to be experienced on a wider scale. But in the miracles, in miracles like this one, Jesus is showing us that the new age is dawning. The promises of God are being fulfilled. And he himself, well, he is the longed-for king in David's line. As God's Messiah comes into the world, it's as though the brokenness of this world, the ravages of sin, they're being undone and rolled back. Crushed and constrained lives. Lives marred and boxed in by blindness. A life... Imprisoned by the debilitating forces of darkness, a tongue unable to speak. These crushed and broken lives are restored and set free as they come face to face with the king. For those familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you'll remember that when we first encounter the land of Narnia in the stories, the land lies covered in snow in a deep freeze the forces of evil in the form of the white witch. These forces have cast a spell all over the land and it's perpetually winter there. But when the true king, Aslan, the lion, representing Jesus Christ in the story, when Aslan returns, the snow begins to melt. Spring comes, life returns, and the cold, drab world is restored to its former beauty. It's a fairy tale, of course, a big metaphor representing a deeper theological truth. But the picture is actually wonderful. It's so well done. As the king returns, the curse is broken and creation blooms once more. Now, I mention that because in Matthew chapter 9, we're seeing what happens as the king returns, when he walks on this earth and among his people, bondage is broken the powers of evil are subdued and the creation flourishes once more in a sense we've we've seen this truth and we've seen this dynamic already a little in the miracles of chapter 8 and in one sense that point is simply being reinforced here But what's significant here in this passage, what Matthew highlights for us in a fresh way is the contrasting, opposing, Marmite-like reactions to this Savior and this King. And it's here on these contrasting responses that I want to just focus our attention for the final few minutes we have. Back in the first section we looked at today, we actually encountered some very divergent and some very contrasting reactions to Jesus. First, we have that ruler in verse 18 who comes and kneels before Jesus and expresses that most remarkable faith in him. My daughter is dead, but if you come and you put your hand on her, I know she will live. Extraordinary faith. Then there's that hopeless and that outcast woman, afflicted and isolated for 12 years. She comes with determination, knowing that if she but touches his garment, she'll be made well. Two people who come to Jesus with real faith, the synagogue ruler, a religious leader within Judaism. He's going against the grain of other religious leaders just in approaching Jesus. The woman, well, for her part, she's defying convention and all the purity laws. Both stepped out. Both are taking a risk of scorn and reproach from their community, but both believed. Both had faith. And as they step out in faith, what are others doing around them? Verse 24, the crowd at the ruler's house, how do they respond? They laugh. They laugh at Jesus when he arrives and declares that the girl's death is not actually death to him. Two people come with faith, they come against the tide. But what's everyone else doing? What's the crowd doing? They're laughing. They're pouring scorn. Now that's actually the thing that jumps off the page for me here. And I think that this contrast is here for a reason. I actually think it's here for our encouragement today. For you and me, as we believe in Jesus, as we come to him by faith, and then as we walk with him by faith day by day, trusting his power to heal, his power to save, coming with confidence, coming with expectancy, as we do that, I think we should anticipate standing out in the crowd. I think we should expect those around us to mock and laugh and pour scorn. You see, it was that way in Jesus' day, and I think it's right to expect that it would be that way in our day, too. It may be that in your family or in your class, at school, among your peer group, at university, on your team, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, it may be that others do laugh. It may be that others mock. It may be that others pour scorn upon you. And if so, here is the encouragement, here is the call of the passage. Stand with this synagogue ruler of old. Stand with this woman who believed and just hold your ground. Trust in Jesus and don't be discouraged. And of course, if you haven't yet come and if you fear the scorn, you know what society says, you know the tenor of the culture about Jesus Christ. If you fear that and you're still in a stage of indecision, just consider from these verses and from these, from these incidents, what would you prefer? Would you prefer ultimately to stand with a laughing crowd? Or would you stand with the ruler who received such great blessing? Would you stand with this woman whose life was made whole? Coming to Jesus, walking with Jesus, it does involve facing a laughing crowd. It sometimes requires a steely determination and a steadfast faith in the face of mockers. That's how it was then. That's how it is now.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality. It is part of our series, Kingdoms Colliding, and we're going to pause here, but we'll get back to the message in just a moment. You know, I know we live busy lives, and you probably can't always be listening to the radio each day at this time and catch every broadcast live when it airs. But you don't have to miss Jonathan's teaching. You can always come to our website. You can listen on demand by streaming the program or downloading an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That is free. That is free. You'll find it at your app store, and that's a great way to stay connected with Jonathan's teaching. Again, you can look for the Encounter the Truth app at the app store, or come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and stream the program or download an mp3 for free. But whether you listen on the radio, online, or through the app, it is all made possible through your generosity. So thank you for giving to and supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book Jonathan has picked called The Names of Jesus. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Again, here is
0: Jonathan coming to Jesus, walking with Jesus, it does involve facing a laughing crowd. It sometimes requires a steely determination and a steadfast faith in the face of mockers. That's how it was then. That's how it is now. Well, that's one great contrast, but we see more in the next little section we looked at. Verse 27 is a remarkable verse. All kinds of people are struggling to figure out who Jesus is, to discern his identity. Not many people are getting it right, but two blind men, they get it right away. They pursue Jesus and they call out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. They they call him Messiah, great King David's greater son. They call him king. That's what they're saying. Two blind guys, they can't see a thing Yet they see Jesus more clearly than anyone else. When these two guys get healed and their sight is restored, the crowd are starting to cotton on to things. The unknowing crowd is now starting to know a little bit, second half of verse 33. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. The crowd in the Gospels aren't great at getting it right all the time, but now they are starting to understand, they are starting to see But when Jesus drives out those demons, notice what the religious leaders have to say. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. The blind men, they saw it. The sometimes mindless crowd, they're starting to see it. But the Pharisees, the elite teachers of the word of God, leaders within Judaism, religious experts... They could not be more mistaken if they tried. Haven't got a clue. The Messiah shows up and he performs stunning miracles by the power of the Spirit of God in accordance with the very promises of the Word of God and they say, this guy is working by the power of demons. He's doing his mighty works through the strength of the enemies of God. 100% wrong pure error, outrageous blasphemy. What do we make of that? How can religious leaders, Bible experts, smart people, highly educated folk, how can they be so wrong? How can they fail to see what the blind man sees? How can they fail to perceive what even the crowd is beginning to perceive? I think we must stand back from this and conclude that the very things that we assume might help help others and help us to have insight into the things of God, religious knowledge, education, intelligence, a high IQ, those things will never guarantee spiritual insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now that is actually a vital principle for us to grasp and to believe. You see, a dose of religion can so often be a barrier to coming to Jesus and to trusting in Jesus. If you spent time in highly institutional or ceremonial forms of religion, you may have some firsthand knowledge of this. You'll know what I'm talking about. The Pharisees were highly religious people, but their religious traditions, no doubt with some good motivations, but their religious traditions actually became a barrier to them. They became a barrier because ultimately their loyalty came to be to those traditions rather than to God himself. And when God shows up right before them, they don't recognize him and they don't want him. These were highly educated people, no doubt, very intelligent people. They were elite in their day. But their education and their intelligence, it didn't help them either And I think this symbolic significance of these two blind men seeing the reality of Jesus, it's very important. Their spiritual sight, their spiritual insight, it wasn't something that they could have generated for themselves. God gave it to them. God showed them. It was a miracle. It was a gift. Though unseeing, they saw. And that was due to the mercy and the kindness of God. And so I think the encouragement for each one of us here is simply this. Don't expect that religious or highly educated people or clever people are going to find it easier to come to Jesus. If you have that expectation, I think you'll be disappointed. Very often, those are the people who are slower to come, slower to believe. And we mustn't think on the other side that uneducated or less intellectual or less religiously inclined people are somehow out of reach of the gospel. Very often, they're more open and more receptive. But none of those factors is decisive. What's decisive is this. God needs to open blind eyes. He needs to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And it is a miracle that he achieves. So our first port of call when we're concerned for someone to come to Christ, our first port of call must be to get down on our knees and ask the Lord in his grace to give sight to the blind. To graciously give sight that they may see, that they may be restored. There is, of course, a place for putting together a really good intellectual argument in defense of the gospel, the Christian faith is thoroughly coherent and intellectually credible, but you can have the most compelling evidence you like. You could have Jesus perform a miracle before someone's eyes, but if their spiritual eyes are blind, they just won't see it. They will not be convinced. And a miracle of God, a miracle of restoration is needed. God needs to step in and restore sight. And God can do that, God does it. And I think the encouragement is simply for us to pray. Pray for yourself if you can't see Jesus. Ask him, open my eyes so that I can see who you are. I still don't get it. That's a great prayer to pray. Pray for loved ones who seem blind, who can't seem to see it, who just don't recognize Jesus and don't understand him. Pray that the Lord would give them sight that they do not have. Savior who cleanses A king who restores. And the central question for each one of us, the urgent question, it is simply this. What is our response to him? What do we make of him? Do we stand aloof with the mocking crowd? Or do we join that kneeling ruler, that believing woman, and come to him in simple faith? Do we write him off as a charlatan and a fraud, Or do we, in simple trust with those blind men, cry out to him for mercy?
1: Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality, part of our series, Kingdoms Colliding. And if you missed any part of today's broadcast, or you just want to go back and listen to it again, or any other broadcast, you can do that by going to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org, EncounterTheTruth.org. Dot O-R-G. Well, as you give a gift of any amount and support Encounter the Truth this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book that Jonathan has picked. It's called The Names of Jesus, written by Warren Wiersbe. And uh, Jonathan, I think sometimes we may have people in our lives that we want to introduce to Jesus. And we may look for different and creative ways to do that. And I think this book is a tool that could be used to to do just that.
0: Oh, I, I think it could. And I often find that I've, I've got a book or a resource that I can hand to people where I sense maybe there's some interest, there's some openness, either to coming to know Jesus for the first time or to growing in him. I love to have something on hand that I can give away. And I think this little book, simple and attractive in its presentation, The Names of Jesus, will be just that kind of resource. And maybe you've got someone in your life, a neighbor or or a grandchild, or a colleague at work, and you think, if I had something available, I could just hand it on and then prayerfully see how the Lord might use it. I think this could be just such a resource.
1: Well, we'd love to send you a copy that you can read for yourself or to give away, or why not do both? You can contact us here at Encounter the Truth. Call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. And our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer Mark Bretta, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.